Ephesians chapter 1 is where we are today. We are in a series of messages that we are walking verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, this great letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and we've entitled this sermon series, Rooted and Grounded. We said that we're rooted in the love of Christ and we're grounded for the Christian life. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all about being rooted in the love of Christ. The last three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all about being grounded in the Christian life. And the way we're grounded in the Christian life is to be rooted in the love of Christ. And so we continue our series here, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse number 11. Please stand in the honor of reading God's Word, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And I'll be reading from the ESV, that's the English Standard Version. But you follow along in your translation as I read from mine. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 11. In him or in Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, Lord, as we open your word and we speak from it, Father, open our hearts and our minds, and I ask that you will speak to us from this word. Move us closer to you through this message we ask in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, please be seated. The message is entitled, A Glorious Salvation. A Glorious Salvation. As we think about the salvation that that God has given to us, obviously we know it's rooted in the love of Christ. And our salvation comes only through a person And his name is Jesus. And so point number one of the message today of Ephesians chapter one, this glorious salvation, as we understand salvation, we understand there must be a person of salvation. There must be the person of salvation. Now think about this salvation that we have for just a moment. I want you to get excited about what the apostle Paul has said about the good news that we have in Christ. First of all, God planned our salvation. That's what he says right here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. He says that it's been predestined according to the purpose of of he who works. Now, last week, we delved deep into those words, predestination and election and and chosen. And so I know that many of us kind of checked our minds out uh, yesterday and we said, okay, I've got all I can. And so we won't go back into that because we've talked about the predestination already, but suffice to say today that what he predestined is the person of Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled. There is no other way a person can be saved apart from Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, our world is telling us something different. Our world says that if you can be a good person or you can follow this or you can be that or you can do this or you can do that and you can be saved. But what our Bible says, what what Jesus says, what God says about this glorious salvation is there is only one way and there is only through one person that we can be saved the person of salvation. And he said he predestined this from the very beginning, that God knew from the very beginning of time that his son would have to come and die. Think about that. Here is God the Father knowing for thousands of years, eternity past, that he was going to have to put his son there on the cross to die for the sinful man. 
But Jesus said it well. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You see, this is planned. God planned our salvation. The cross was no accident. The cross was not an afterthought, not an emergency message. (laughs) When Adam and Eve sinned, God wasn't sitting in heaven twiddling his thumb saying, oh no, I didn't see that one coming, right? No, he knew what was going to happen. And he knew, as we said, from eternity past, he was going to have to send his son. This was no emergency message. This was a planned event. God planned it. God thought it. Our salvation. But not only did God plan it, but God also purchased the salvation of ours through the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the price that no man can pay. He paid the price with his blood. So he planned it and he purchased it. The old-timers used to say, I love this. The old-timers used to say, God thought it, Jesus bought it, and the Spirit wrought it. I love that. (laughs) God thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit wrought it. He, 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 He formed it in our hearts. And verse 11 tells us that we obtained an inheritance in Christ. We gain our salvation through Jesus. He is the person of salvation. In Jesus, and Jesus alone, God provides something for us that we cannot do by ourselves. We cannot do this by ourselves. God is holy. God is perfect. God is that holy other. He is separated from sin. God cannot allow sin into his heaven. God, in fact, cannot even look upon sin. God must turn his back on sin. And so here's the enigma. God can't look to sin, but he wants a relationship with us, but yet we're sinners. So how is this possible? There's a war between man and God created by man's own rebellion. So how is it that God can rescue? How is it that God can redeem us, sinful man? If he can't allow sin into heaven, but yet we're sinners, how is this all going to work out? Well... Verse 11 tells us that Paul says, He who works all things according to the nature of his will. That God is sovereign. God is in control. And you say, well, what does that mean exactly? Pastor, verse 11, he works all things according... Does does that mean that God could lower his standard? Could God choose to lower his standard of righteousness and and compromise his own law, compromise his own purity and, and righteousness, just lower his standard? That's what we're doing in our country today, isn't it? In America, it's called the dumbing down of America. We, we, we don't, we, we, we have some schools that, that aren't, uh, excelling in academics the way other schools are. So, so instead of, of pouring resources into that school, we just dumb down everything. We lower the standard. It's happening in the school system. It's happening everywhere. So, pastor, could, could God just lower his standard? It's sort of like Willie Nelson, you know, right before he got in trouble with the IRS. He had a golf course, and they were asking him one day he was playing golf, and they said, Willie, what's the par on this hole? He said, well, today it's a 9, yesterday it was an 11. You have to be a golfer to get that joke, I guess. So He changed the par. He lowered the standard. He, he made it easier. Strike that joke from... The sermon. 
so, so you say, Pastor, could, could God just change the par? Could he have just changed the standard? Well, the answer is a resounding no. No, he couldn't. If God did that, if God lowered his standard, the whole universe would explode. Why? Because God would cease being God. He cannot violate his deity. He cannot violate his holiness. He cannot dumb it down. You say, well, if, if God can't lower his standard, if he can't dumb it down, then, then can we somehow pick it up? Can we live it up? Somehow, somehow get a boost. Somehow try harder. Work harder. Maybe, maybe through ethical behavior or through education or responsibility, somehow can man attain the standard of God. And of course, we know that doesn't work either. As hard as we try, as hard as we strive, sweat and strain, we cannot achieve the standard of God. What's God's standard? Perfection. We can't attain that. As hard as we try, we cannot live a perfect life. None of us. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's not going to work. So here's the problem. If God can't lower his standard and, and we can't just simply live and, and be a good person and, and, and get a relationship with God that way, what's the solution? The solution is very simple. God had to become a man. God had to come in the form of a man, in the person of Jesus Christ. And he had to come on a mission of mercy. You see, that's why we say he's the person of salvation. This glorious salvation is tied to a person whose name is Jesus. Jesus came through the portals of a virgin womb. He didn't have the sin of Adam flowing through his veins. And so he came through the portals of a virgin womb. He lived a sinless and perfect life. The Lamb of God was placed on that cross. The blood that was shed reconciled us to the Lord, forgave us. We are forgiven by his blood. We have remission of our sins through the blood of Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. That's through that. Our forgiveness is found in the blood, the shed blood of Christ. So he is the person of salvation. But not only do we see the person of salvation in this text, we also see the power of salvation. The person of salvation is Jesus Christ. But let's notice where the power of salvation lies. How is it that we know that any of this is real? How is it that we know that, that, that indeed there's something to this thing called Christianity? Well, our, our power for salvation, our power in salvation comes, according to Ephesians, from two sources. First, there is the Word of God. Verse 13 speaks of the Word of truth. We believe the Word of truth. Then secondly, not only is there the Word of truth, but there's also the Holy Spirit. So here we have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and we see that that's where the power comes in. When the Word of God and the Spirit of God come together, coupled together, inseparably linked is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now, this is so important. Because you see, in the Christian life, we, we go to extremes, don't we? We often like to live our life in the extremes. And in the Christian faith, we often see the extremes of the Christian faith is when we deny one or the other. When we either live in the Spirit of God and we reject the Word of God, or we live in the Word of God and we reject the Spirit of God. This is often where we find the extremes of, of our faith, of, of Christianity. We see churches, whole churches, whole denominations built upon one or the other. Some want the Spirit 
and only the Spirit. That, 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 that's a feel-good doctrine. But you see, that produces an imbalance, an extreme, a fanaticism, a holy unction. It, it, we, we get stirred up and, and our emotions get going, but there's, there's no truth of the Word of God. And then we want the Word of God, but we want to separate. You see, we Baptists, we, we get scared of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. You know, we changed it from Holy Ghost to Holy Spirit because too many people are scared of ghosts. But how, how, seriously, how, how many hymns are in the Baptist hymnal on the Holy Ghost, on the Holy Spirit? How, how many sermons did you hear growing up if you were raised in a Baptist church, if you were raised in any, any denomination except for a charismatic Pentecost, how many, how many times have you ever heard sermons on, on the Spirit-filled life, on the Holy Spirit? On the Holy, you don't hear it. Why? Because we're afraid. We live our life according to the Word of God, but, but we separate ourselves from the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. If you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. It's the Word of God that enables us to understand the Spirit of God. It's the Word of God that enables us to understand the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God that enables us to interpret the Word of God. I'm going to say that again. It's the Word of God that enables us to understand the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is not going to be someone that the, that the Word says He's not. In other words, there are some out there that, that, that bark like dogs. I'm not joking. They bark like dogs and they cluck like chickens and they say this is the manifestation of the Spirit of God. Wait a minute. I don't see that in Scripture. You see, the Word of God enables us to understand who the Spirit of God is. But the Spirit of God enables us to, to interpret the Word of God. There was an old song that was written back, I guess, in the 70s. It was talking about love and marriage. You can't have one without the... You've heard that song too, haven't you? You can't have one without the other. You see, we were talking a little bit about the spirits. There's all kinds of spirits in this world, right? If we could put on glasses that allowed us to see the spiritual realm, we would see all kinds of spirits. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost is not the only spirit that's out there. There's a lot of spirits. There's even, Jesus said that right now when we're living, the spirit of the Antichrist is here. There's all kinds of spirits walking around the earth. There's all kinds of spirits. So how do we identify the real spirit? How do we know that, that, that what we're experiencing and what we're talking about and what we're feeling and, and what we're teaching is the Holy Spirit? Well, it's by the Word of Truth. We interpret the Holy Spirit through the Word of Truth. So many of our brothers and sisters in Christ go to extremes with the Spirit of God. They go beyond the scope of what the Word of God says. And because of this, as we have already said, many Baptist churches have, have become very afraid to speak of the Holy Ghost. We're afraid of teaching or singing about the third person of the Trinity. Understand this, the Spirit of God is not someone to be scared of. The Holy Spirit of God is, is one who comes and, and He is where our salvation comes from. He is in part where our power comes from. The one thing that I love about Brother Joe and sitting under Brother Joe's teaching is, is he constantly teaches us about the Spirit-filled life. And we're going to get there in Ephesians 5. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? You see, the, the Spirit of God is not someone we should reject. We teach our children that when they're saved, that... Ask Jesus to come into your heart. And that's not wrong. 
I mean, that, that, that's simplifying it so a child can understand it. But do we really believe that Jesus comes? No. Who comes and lives in you? It's the Spirit of Christ, right? The, the, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and it lives inside of us. He's not someone to be afraid of. He, he is someone that we should embrace. And not in a mindless or careless or reckless way. Which can happen if you try to experience the Spirit apart from the Word. Because what's going to happen is if you're trying to experience the Spirit apart from the Word, you're going to encounter a whole lot of spirits and you're not going to know which one is right and which one is wrong. That's why it's so important to be a pupil of this book. As we said, power comes from two places. According to our text, the Spirit of God, but also from the Word of God. And let me say that just as some tried to practice their faith in, in the realm of the Spirit apart from the Word, the vice versa happens too. So many try to live their life of faith in accordance with the Word, but separate it from the Spirit. And many of us Baptists, that, that's what we do. We, we want to be students of the Word, but separate ourselves from the Spirit of God, not focus in on what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, in this extreme, there's great orthodoxy. There's great knowledge. People develop a, a religious background. They have a great deal of knowledge about Scripture. But listen, they never accomplish anything with their lives. Living your life in accordance with the Word, but not living your life in accordance with the Spirit. They've never allowed the Spirit of God to come and take root in their life and to move in their hearts with life and liberty. One of the hardest places to minister is not Central Florida. One of the hardest places to minister is in the Bible Belt. You know why? Because everybody thinks they're saved. They think they're saved because their names are written on a, a, a church roll. I mean, there's no evidence of the script, and they, they know the Bible. They were raised in church. They went to vacation Bible school. They started vacation Bible school. Their parents built the churches they're worshiping in. So you go to Tennessee, you go to Alabama, you go to Mississippi, you go, you go to Texas, you go to Arkansas, you go to these places that what we call the Bible Belt. And once you're going to encounter, yes, many wonderful people, many godly people, in some ways, I love the Bible Belt because we, we, there, there's, there's just a commonality, but there's also a struggle. The great struggle is there's a whole lot of knowledge about the Bible, but there's not a whole lot of spirit. We have all of this knowledge, but there's no spirit. It's lifeless. It's dull. It's monotonous. Why? Because it's void of power. When you separate and you only stay in the Word and you separate the Spirit from the Word, you have no power. You've got all the knowledge. But you're missing the Spirit. You're still missing the power. So what God has done is He says the power for the Christian, the power for salvation is coupling the Spirit of God with the Word of God, and He brings those together. And when the Word of God is preached and the Son of God is received, the Spirit of God then imparts life in you. And that's salvation. That's how you can find strength for tomorrow. You know, I've lived my life in these extremes, and probably so have you. Oftentimes we find ourselves going to extremes, and 
I've lived my life in accordance with the spirit and, and focusing on the spiritual realm and having religious experiences and having this, what I call a camp mentality. You know what I mean by camp mentality? Students go to summer camp and, and, you know, they get away from all of the things of this world and they leave their, their cell phones because we make them leave their cell phones. And, and so they're not sitting there texting and they're, they're actually focused in and, and, and God pours into them and something happens in these students' lives during, during summer camp. And then when they get home, they're on a spiritual high, but then the camp mentality kicks in and they come back and they get back in the world and <laughs> High spiritual experiences. That's why I call, if you live in the spirit apart from the word, I call that a camp mentality. Because at some point, you're going to get deflated. At some point, the spiritual high is going to meet real life, and you're going to say, oh, where's the truth? You see, it's all fun and games until life happens. And so we can live in accordance with the spirit, but, and I've lived that way. But you see, it's not complete. I've also lived my life studying the Word, trying to gain knowledge and, and glean knowledge, all of this, all of this, all of this, this knowledge of the Word, studying His Word, digging in His Word, an hour quiet time, two hour quiet time, three hour quiet time, and, and having a highly structured prayer life, digging into the intricacies of, of theological matters, but completely void of the life of the Spirit. If the first extreme is what I call a camp mentality, the second extreme is what I call the seminary mentality. You know, climbing up in an ivory tower, closing the door, removing yourself from genuine worship and the Spirit. But you see, what I've found in life, it's only, it's only when I allow both of these to come into my life and take root in my Christian walk that I truly realize the victory. You see, God gave us both His Word and His Spirit, not to be at odds with one another, but to complement one another. You say, well, how in the world do I live my life in the Word and, and in the Spirit? That's a really good question, and we're going to answer that question, I hope, every Sunday for the next several weeks in this series. So you need to come. Don't miss a Sunday. But I know that's not realistic for some of us. So suffice to say, you're sitting here, I, I've thrown the hook out, I threw the bait out, and you're, you're ready to, to bite into that hook, and you say, give me something, because, Pastor, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm living in the Spirit and I'm living in the Word. How, how can I do that? Let me, give you, let me give you something practical that you can do, something that I do. Instead of having a clock beside your Bible when you're having your quiet time to make sure that you read a whole hour, replace your clock with a song. Take your clock away. Put your phone up. And have a song. Spend a few moments worshiping God through a song, through a hymn, through, through a praise song, through a praise chorus during your quiet time. When you read the scripture, instead of trying to read two chapters every day, instead of trying to, instead of trying to read all of this, all of this, uh, the, 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 this, this information and don't read the Bible just for information, uh, approach your quiet time, approach your quiet time not as a sprint, but as a marathon. You know, we, oftentimes when we come to the Bible, we, we open the Bible and we just sprint. We just get this done. I got to get to work. I got to this. I got to get this. I got to get this. And we just sprint. We run. So what, what, what can we do? So we can check it off. Yep, did that. Now I can feel better about myself because I read the Bible today. I feel better about myself because I came to church today. 
And so we check it off. And we look at, we look at our relationship, we look at our relationship with God as a sprint, as a checklist. Men, how would your wife feel if you looked at your relationship? Husbands, if you looked at your relationship with your wife like that, what kind of relationship would you have? If you told her and she knew, I've got to tell my wife seven times a day that she's beautiful and I love her. And you've got a checklist and you're on, you're on number four, check. Honey, you're beautiful. That haircut is beautiful. I love you. That's number five, check. Before you go to bed, you realize, I've got two more to go. I better get them in. Baby, you're beautiful. Honey, I love you, baby. I tell you, you're beautiful. I love you. Check, check. (laughs) What is she going to say to you? What? Don't answer that, ladies. We're in church. We're in church. Don't answer that. (laughs) But what, what? What kind of relationship are you going to have? You're not going to have one. How do you think God feels when we approach our relationship with Him that way? Take the clock away. I know so many want to read the Bible in a whole year. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I try to do that. But don't allow that reading of the Bible. If you're wanting to read the Bible from front to back in a year's time, that's great. That's wonderful. Do that. But don't let that replace your quiet time in the Lord. Because you see, all you're doing is reading big chunks of the Bible. And, 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 and you're sprinting through the pages of Scripture. But listen, this book is alive. And if you allow the Spirit of God who lives in you to interpret this and you approach this book and say, God, what can I learn? Sometimes in my quiet time, I can't get past one verse. Because I read in Romans 3.23, for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. And I'm reading this and saying, oh man, I'm not a good person at all. God, I'm a sinner. God, look at all that I've done. Look at what you've done for me and look what I've done to you. And I I just can't get past that verse. And so I'll spend, I don't know how long, and I'll, I'll sing songs and then I'll start thumbing through Scripture and say, but, you know, greater is he who's within me. I don't have to fall in sin. Look at what Jesus has done for me. And we, we allow our quiet time to be, take on life. You see the difference? You see the difference? Number three. The third thing we see about this glory of salvation, the person of salvation, the power of salvation, number three, the promise of salvation. Verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then him or in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. Now there's some debate as to when does the feeling of the Spirit happen? When does the Spirit of, of the Lord come in and save you? There are whole denominations that teach about this thing called a second blessing. If you watch enough Christian television, you're going to hear people talk about a second blessing. Know this, that is bogus. There is, when when you are saved, if you are truly saved, when you repent of your sins, you confess Christ as Savior and Lord, you, you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. When you are saved, it's at that point, at that moment, the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Ephesians 1, 13 tells me, and that's all I need to know. Notice what he says. In Christ, 
When you heard the word of truth, verse 13, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed at that moment, he says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You don't have to pray for a second blessing or a third blessing or a 20th blessing. What God gives you at that moment of salvation is he places a piece of heaven, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, inside of you. No longer. You see, Jesus taught his disciples this, didn't he? He was walking with them and they didn't want him to leave. He said, I got to go. They said, we don't want you to go. This is awesome. This life, Jesus, is awesome. You're taking dead men and you're making them alive. You're taking men that were born blind and giving them sight. This is awesome. Don't go away, Jesus. And Jesus said, I got to go away. And if I go away, listen, there's somebody even greater that's coming. What was he meaning? Well, it's not that the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is greater than Jesus. What was he meaning? Here's what he was meaning. For the first time in history, at the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, something happened that had never happened before. It's at that moment the Spirit of God ceased walking along with the people of God, and now the Spirit of God is coming and taking residence inside the believer. No longer is God dwelling in in the temple made by the hands of man, but now the Spirit of God, God himself, is living in those temples, our hearts that's made by the hand of God. And so we have the precious Holy Spirit. He comes at the moment of salvation. The seal of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the, the regeneration, all of this is talking about the same thing. At the moment of salvation, you are regenerated. John chapter 3, you're born again. When you are born again, he places within you salvation. You receive salvation. Are you perfect? No. You still have to walk through life. Sanctification begins at the point of salvation. Have you arrived? No. We arrive when this old, this, this old body quits ticking and we step into heaven. That's when we arrive. That's the final form of salvation, glorification. But he says here that we are sealed. A seal is a guarantee. You say, what is a seal? Is a seal those, those black animals that we see at sea where or, 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 is that, is that the seal he's talking about here? No. Somebody's talking about it all. The seal that he's talking about is a guarantee. A guarantee. The, the seal that's mentioned here, the ancients would, would authenticate documents with a seal. There's three things I want us to see very quickly. We're running out of time. Three things that we see about the seal. Number one, a seal that's mentioned in the Bible, it shows that it's a finished transaction. It's a finished transaction. It's a receipt. When your transaction, if you go to a store and you buy something, you purchase something, they give you a tender of receipt, a tender of sale. This sale is final. It is over. Here's your receipt. That's a seal. That, that, that's that's a, a picture that the sale is final. It's a finished transaction. And what God has done is he's placed his Holy Spirit in us and said it's final. It's, it's done. And if you're a believer in Christ, this has happened to you. Your spirit bears witness with the Spirit of God. Number two, it's a sign of authority. Kings would often seal decrees with the kingdom's crest. They would change laws, and the law was changed, not by a a role of senate or house or anything like that, 
but the king had the authority. When the king put his seal, he had a signet ring, a ring that had a, 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 a sign on it. And when they put that hot wax on a document, he would take his ring and he would imprint that wax with his ring. So when he pulled his ring out, his symbol was on that piece of paper. That said, that was a sign of authority. So what the Bible says here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that the Spirit of God, when you heard, you believed, it says you were marked in Him with a seal. What that means is that when you were saved, God looked down and He placed the authority of heaven in us. Isn't that good? He placed the authority of heaven in us. So we know that this is not phony, but this is real. Number three is the seal of God is also a guarantee of protection. A guarantee of protection. When the king placed his signet ring and he, he sealed that document, that document was protected. It could not be changed. It was, it was done. It was, as the, the song says, I was going to name this sermon, Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, but I knew if I did that, we'd all be singing that song the whole sermon. So now it's just for the rest of the sermon we'll be singing that song in our heads. Signed, Sealed, Delivered. But the point is that when he sealed us, he sealed us with, you, you cannot lose your salvation. We talked about this last week. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or love you less. And we see this here in Ephesians 1.13. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He placed his authority. He placed his guarantee of protection around us. Finally, number four, the fourth part of the generous salvation he gives is the pledge of salvation. This is verse 14. I don't want you to miss this. Verse 14, look at it with me. Who is the guarantee? This is speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is not an it or a thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. Who, He, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What's this talking about? This is talking about the pledge that God has given to us. The pledge of the Spirit. The, the guarantee. That word guarantee in the Greek is, is the word arhaban. Arhaban. In the ancient world, the arhaban, the guarantee or the pledge, it was a down payment. Now, now we know, we, we may not understand a guarantee or a pledge or the word arhaban, but we, we know what a down payment is, right? If I want to go and buy a home or I want to buy a piece of property, I go and I put some earnest money down. When I put earnest money down, what, what am I telling the person that's selling the, the property? That I'm interested in that piece of property, right? That I, I'm going to make an investment in that piece of property to deposit. Now, the Holy Spirit is a deposit. He is earnest money. We've not received all of heaven yet. We're not there. We, we've not arrived. We're, we're living for that day, but until that, we're living in this day. But until that day, we're in this day, but He's given us a piece of heaven, the Holy Spirit of God who, who lives inside of us. God has given us a pledge that He will never back out of this agreement. This word arhaban, which means guarantee. It's the word guarantee there in your Bible, the word pledge, the word guarantee, the word down payment. Later on, it became known, the arhaban became known as the engagement ring. They would use the, the Greek word arhaban, and they would call the, the engagement ring the arhaban. And we understand that as well, don't we? Boy meets girl. Girl meets boy. Boy says, wow. Wow. That girl, I'm going to marry. And that girl says, I don't even know who that guy is. And so boy does dumb things to try to get the attention of girl. And girl says, I really am not going to marry that guy. 
for that boy, he bats his eyes and he brings some flowers and some, he, he shows a sweet side. And so boy falls in love with girl and girl falls in love with boy. And over time, over time, and students, if, if your parents are like I am, it's going to be a long time before this happens. I told you, church, that Abigail, I made her sign. She was two years old, but I made her sign an agreement. I've got it. It says, I will not date until I'm 55 years old. She signed her name. It may not be legible, but she signed her name, and I'm going to show her that when she turns 15. I've got it. It's in my, it's in my fire safe. I'm not joking. It's in my fire safe. But eventually, she'll start dating. And there'll never be a man that's worthy to take her hand. But she'll find some gorilla. And he'll put a ring on her finger. What is that engagement ring? It's a promise. When a couple get engaged, their whole attention... Have you ever seen, remember back to an engaged couple. They have no clue what's going on around them anymore, do they? They're sucked into this vortex and all they see is that day, right? That wedding day. And all their whole mind and their whole focus is going to that day. Well, folks, your Bible says that God has placed an Arbon on us. He's placed an engagement ring in us. And we are to be consumed waiting for a marriage, a wedding in the sky. Our heavenly bridegroom is coming back. And when he comes back, we're going to be caught up together. We're going to meet the Lord in the sky and have a beautiful wedding feast. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? And he said that I have given you, I've placed in you an engagement. You say, oh, I didn't get no engagement ring. Listen, we're not talking about a real ring now. I hope you figured this one out. We're talking about the Spirit of God. He, he, the Bible says, is the guarantee. He is the Arbon. He is the engagement ring. Now, there's coming a day. There is coming a day when the clouds will split. We just sang about it, oh, glorious day. There's, there's coming a day when the clouds will split. God says, enough is enough. Michael, pick up the trumpet, go sound the trumpet, and this trumpet's going to sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and those of us who are alive will be caught up, raptured up, meet the Lord in the air, and the heavenly bridegroom says, now is the wedding feast. That's that day. That's that day. There was a preacher a long time ago. His name was Vance Havner. Ever heard of Vance Havner? Great preacher. He preached a mighty sermon entitled, Living in the great until. I love that word until. Because so many of us, we, we lose sight, we lose focus. But, but what we see here is that we need to be like that, the, the, those, those engage, that engaged couple that's so enthralled about the wedding day that everything we do is about getting ready for that day. Not focused on, oh, look at what the doctor said, or look at what happened to me at work, or, or listen to this, or, or look at that, or did you see what she was wearing? Can you believe the haircut he's got? We get so focused on all this other stuff. When he says, listen, I've given you an engagement ring. I've placed the Spirit of God. 
and live your life as if it was that day. But in this day, live until that day. If we do that, that's going to change a whole lot of stuff, isn't it? It's going to change where we go. It's going to change what we listen to. It's going to change what we watch. It's going to change what we say. It's going to change what we do. And my prayer, my prayer is that we will live our life that way.